0: Joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. So I'm so happy to have this second conversation with Tyson Young Caporta. Um, He's a brilliant thinker. He's the author of Sand Talk: How Indigenous Wisdom Can Save the World, which I think everybody should read, because I think saving the world is probably not a bad idea. And in this conversation, we cover a lot of the core beliefs that have guided my life uh, from his indigenous perspective. And trigger warning, he's not a fan of veganism. And double trigger warning, I don't try to defend it. Uh, Instead, I... We, we yarn about it and trying to put it into a perspective in which my veganism, um, which I see as a way to minimize harm through my lifestyle choices, can coexist with his um, indigenous sense of living according to the law of the land. So I think it's going to be a very interesting conversation. <laughs> and I've got to say, you know, people come and they want to be on the podcast who are, you know, healers and chefs. And I take a look at their website. And if I see if they haven't a recipe with eggs in it, I say no. This is not a good fit. Um, but I really wanted to have this conversation because I do believe that veganism is a a tactic. It's not the end goal of life. And so in this conversation, I wanted to see like if can we can we get to an agreement about how humans should live. Um, Whether veganism is a part of it or not So we also talk about the hero's journey Of which Tyson is not a fan And I've kind of lived my life and taught a lot Based on the hero's journey So it was really interesting to hear How this is an artifact of a particular civilization A a self-terminating civilization As opposed to a truism uh, the natural law you know the uh, the mono myth of Joseph Campbell, apparently he he grabbed a lot from indigenous cultures and missed most of the context it 's a long and comprehensive conversation, so rather than uh, give you all the summary now i 'll just let you get right into it. so without further ado, Tyson Yocoporto, welcome back to the plant yourself podcast
1: hey how you doing mm. um, yeah let's let 's get planted. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so um, I want to do a little bit of background, not assuming that everyone's listened to the last one that we did with, uh, with Glenn Murphy or, or read your book, but ba- basically you've written this book, Sam Talk, that kind of showed me that a lot of my assumptions about the world are really assumptions about a very limited experience of, of civilization, of a culture, and it's not mm. universal. And since since we talked last time and I keep coming up with more and more examples that I think I think this is one and I think this is one, too. But you have sort of like a, a general like a grounding of the difference between, you know, uh, you, your book is subtitled How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World, like a basic fundamental difference between Indigenous thinking and what I have grown up on.
1: Yeah, um, well, I, I, I guess just time. It's funny. Like, I think if you're using really genuinely using indigenous thinking that you're embedded in um, the word indigenous and the category of indigenous and non-indigenous doesn't work anymore. (laughs) Do you know (laughs) what I mean? Um, So just
0: that's one of the things that I've actually been like going in circles about is how to ask like the the problem isn't that I'm going to get the wrong answer, but it's that I'm asking Mm. the wrong questions. Or I'm, yeah. like the question that I ask is already loaded with an assumption.
1: That's it. And I guess I'm just making a distinction there between, I don't know. See, there's this idea of the authentic indigenous, like the native, untouched, untainted. Uh, never had the flu, you know, there's that <laughs> idea, like as if that exists anywhere on the planet anymore, maybe a couple of places, um, but if, if so, not for long. You know, and then there's you know, um, the native, the, 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 the colonized and in the process of decolonizing kind of native, you know what I mean? So for a lot of people, you know, being indigenous is about uh, being of indigenous descent and, um, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, inhabiting that group identity and sort of, you know, moving towards these ideas of decolonization uh, if not actually physically, you know, into a separate nation, which is usually what happens, you know, we just end up replicating these settler structures of nations when we separate. Um, if not like that, then just you know, your self work inside, your deco- you're getting the colony out of your system or whatever. Um, it's a, it's a difficult it's a difficult thing, uh, but but you know, like I don't know to actually really deeply inhabit. You know what people are calling indigeneity and all the rest of it. You find that all these terms lose meaning for you, like mm-hmm. they just fall by the wayside. Because I mean, they're they're looking at very different timeframes, different timelines, etc., etc., etc. For me, you know, the indigenous knowledge isn't in the isn't it's not in the, the history and the stories and the the um, the tragedies and, and all that sort of thing. Like that's something that we have to deal with. You know, that's true. However, like it, it's it's in the processes and ways of thinking, ways of knowing that have survived everything, you know, that we're all carrying. Um, that's what I, I find really exciting because those things are resilient and they survive all kinds of cataclysms. And I guess the world's facing some cataclysms at the moment. So it's those robust and resilient um you know, like, meta-structures of culture, which are going to be important uh, to carry forward. Mm -hmm. So we need to pay attention to them. Um, Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but I think about, like, like, you know, there's something, like, very romantic about, okay, let's, like, I would love to go live in a Stone Age village, right, and just... (laughs) Right. But that's not that's not realistic. That's not going to save us. We're not. Humanity is not going to make that choice, nor do I think that that's a very indigenous way of thinking like, hey, let's just, you know, reverse the clock and go back to Mm. to that. But I'm also thinking, like I I read some books by um, I guess a Mayan shaman, Martin Prestel, who talked about like the Mayans could have invented computers, but it co- it cost too much. Like they understood yeah. that.
1: <laughs> uh, isn't that like, lovely? Just,
0: you know, like how how like I'm trying to figure out how can I? I do
1: see all that chip circuitry in their in their artwork. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Now. Yeah,
0: like, how you know, how do I how do I approach, you know, the sustainable ways of that indigenous ways of knowing have while I'm surrounded by electric lights, by particle board, by computers? Like, is like, is there a way to, you know, am, am, I'm thinking about this in terms of like the past, the pure past mm. Mm. and the, the messy extractive future. Like, is there a non-extractive way to
1: look? uh, Here's the thing, Um, you know, and, and this is what being indigenous is for, for want of a better word, the thing that everybody's looking for, basically, you know, I call it human because we're all born in that way. We're all born indigenous. It just, we have to be industrialized and domesticated over about eight years. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So anyway, uh, so that way that undomesticated, that might be a better word. That way, if we're being the species that we're supposed to be and occupying our ecological niche, you know, which is the custodial species niche, if we're doing that, then what we're doing is we're adapting to our context and we're responding to our context, whatever the hell it is. You find yourself in a gulag, that's your context, and you're responding to it. You know, you find yourself in bloody Silicon Valley, then you're there and you're working with that. And... and Just that's what we do. So wherever we are now, that's what we have to respond to. It doesn't mean we have to support any destructive systems that are continuing to destroy, but we do need to respond in real time to the real things that are going on. Look, there's this idea about, um, there's this false division of sort of natural and synthetic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my old people keep slapping me for doing that because they keep going, no, (laughs) you know, um, you know, polymer resins have dreaming too, kind of thing. Um, You know, computer chips have a dreaming, too. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah, they do. You know, but (laughs) Um, anyway, so everything that's in creation, good or bad, is part of creation. Yes, that's true. But, you know, under the patterns of custodial relations that we have, I've come to understand that there are combinations of things. And I guess we can get into this with diet. Because that's what we really need to be talking about today is diet. Like I felt like that's well, where you wanted I to want, go. I, I
0: wanted to, want to explore that as a, I mean, as as a sort of a case study of this mm. larger issue. Like I don't just want to like, you know, debate, okay, vegan, cool. or, but, but like, yeah, because, yeah, but because well, that means well so diet's going to be many. a
1: really good example of this. Beautiful. Yeah. Of Okay. So, so in what people are calling nature, there, there are things that should be combined and there are things that should remain separate. And, and that's what the law of the land is for. And the law of the land, you know, at a basic level, a lot of people will refer to that as, as natural law, mm-hmm. you know, or even the laws of physics, like they're there to tell us our limits, you know, and, and if you're combining things that shouldn't be combined, then over time the law will take, the law of the land will sort you out and you will be ceased from existing. Okay, so for example, an animal species, any species that is, um, that is starting to do, you know, repeatedly over time, um, father-daughter or mother-son matings. So if they're mating parent and child, that species in, in a very short time will cease to exist because the law of the land will take care of them. That's a combinatorial that shouldn't happen hmm that's a bit that's too i mean yes it can happen and those child the children that are born of that union yes they are part of creation and they are special lovely beings that's true but that shouldn't be happening so the law of the land will take care of that like with birth defects etc over time will destroy that line will destroy that uh, even that species if that species continues to do that so you know there are things that shouldn't combine. There are elements that shouldn't combine. You know, like <laughs> <clears throat> there's certain things. You, I mean, you know, uranium it, just in the ground, it's all right in that form when it's in the ground. when you start to combine it with other things and do weird stuff to it, it goes no good. You know, um, everything else. There's certain things that you should not be, you should not be messing with and combining with other elements you know there are certain uh, so so all the things that have been combined together to make new elements to make your computer that's all you know the natural law of that the law of the land uh, has already meted out its punishment for that like a bunch of poisons have been produced from that that are going to kill you they're in the air they're in the water and they're in the land now and they will kill you your punishment has already been set in motion from this computer that you're using Mm because it's against the law of the land anyway so that's that was that was the way i've been trying to describe it lately is this idea of uh wrong combinations of things Uh yes they're part of creation and yes they exist and yes they have spirit but there's certain things that shouldn't be combined and i guess we're here as the custodial species to make sure that doesn't happen Mm -hmm.
0: so when i when i filter that through the what i think is sort of the central dictum of the book about narcissism yeah. So like how do like, I'm trying to think like and again, I can hear the industrial progress oriented echoes in the question is like, how do I know what's good to combine like, human beings or inventors? We like try mm. new stuff all the time. Like, is there like, w- you know, like. I'll give you an example. Like there's, you know, there's CRISPR technology. These, like, you know, genetically modific- modifying genes, and we've seen yeah. a lot, you know, of of stuff that people argue about. But I just heard recently about CRISPR technology applied to precision fermentation. That these vats where you can grow like proteins and whatever you mm. want. So and 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 like a lot of vegans are like, yay, we can finally grow meat and we don't have to hurt animals anymore and we will never oh, wow. have we won't have any more poverty because we can also grow all the vegetables and it'll be much like cheaper and perfect and we won't have to be in land and i'm listening mm. to this and part of my mind is going wow that's amazing the the part of my mind that read sand talk is like that is some dangerous shit
1: yeah well it's it's tricky because you don't know so just look at CRISPR, all Right? let's just look at that So you could look at Africa and say, man, you know, there's so much sickle cell anemia there. we got to sort that out. We can sort it out with gene editing. Mm. We can gene edit everyone in Africa so there's no more sickle cell. And so you do that. And then all of a sudden, all these people start dropping dead with malaria because, you know, most people carry the sickle cell as a recessive gene and that recessive gene Makes you resistant to malaria. You know what I mean.
0: Mm-hmm. So I mean,
1: what if you just cured sickle cell, and then all of a sudden millions more people are dying from malaria. <sighs> uh, and and then you go, oh well, shit. What are we gonna? Okay, we need to kill every mosquito in Africa. Here, let's um, well, let's just genetically modify three female mosquitoes, who like you know uh, will spread infertility throughout the. The mosquito population, and then let's let them rep, you know, because they are releasing genetically modified fricking mosquitoes all around the world at the moment to do all kinds of weird stuff. Anyway, so you let them go, and and from your CRISPR, and then every mosquito in Africa drops dead. No more malaria. It's awesome. And then why are the elephants dying? Why are the giraffes like? Did did their necks look like that before? That's weird. You know, everything has a Mm. knock-on effect in complexity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're not, if you do not have appropriate lenses to be able to view the complex whole over time, and you need to be able to view it over deep time and the knock on effects, then you shouldn't be tinkering with anything. <laughs> you know, hey. it might be nice to have a glow in the dark, like a Chihuahua that you can read by at night. <laughs> I mean, the people are doing that just in their backyards now. It might be nice, but, um, I don't know. Just think about that for a bit. (laughs) Anyway,
0: so I mean, it's weird. What just came to my mind is there. You know, the number one series on Netflix right now, at least in the U.S., is this series called "The Queen's Gambit." About oh yeah, uh, have you seen that?
1: I'm in the middle of it right now. I'm loving it.
0: Uh, Okay, so like, like to me, that's like a metaphor for. colonializing civilization, like everything Mm. everybody tries as a solution actually is the problem, Mm. right? Like the couple want to adopt and the adoption becomes a problem. The mother like goes, takes her for a ride that causes the problem. The pills are supposed to help her and they become like everything that everybody tries becomes a bigger problem that they have to Resolve, and it feels like like that's Western civilization. That's the civilization that it's not like Nietzschean, like you have your your thesis and antithesis, and then you have a better synthesis. When you look at it over indigenous time, it's just like it's just getting worse and worse.
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, look, this um basically the Queen's Gambit is a story of someone, someone who who's stubborn enough they refuse to allow their mind to be domesticated. That's it.
0: Hmm. It's a girl
1: through a series of accidents who discovered, you know, a stubborn streak in herself that, that allowed her to, um, you know, even though it threatened her life to do so, she refused, refused to let her mind be domesticated, you know, and and that's, that's it. That's all it is. And of course it's going to destroy her. I'm not to the end yet. So don't spoil it for me. Actually, you can spoil it. I don't care. Um, But yeah, (laughs) she's probably going to die. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's very difficult. Uh, to live in this society, you know, um, uh, with an undomesticated mind or not completely domesticated mind in any way, uh, unless that interaction with society is mediated by some sort of drugs. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But all back right. to food. I mean, I'm so I'm imagining all these sort of vegan tubes, like, you know, you've got a machine there each day that'll Star Trek up your dinner for you, and you can have whatever you want. Or or like you know, and uh, and it's it's see it's kind of interesting because to be vegan and not die over a decade or two, you've got to be a you've got to have a bit of a lab going. Like you've got to be a bit of a scientist. Like you need to mix like just the exact amount of stuff, you know, like twenty percent this one and you know, (laughs) um, of supplements in order to make sure that you're actually able to absorb those proteins and absorb all those nutrients the right way. And you've got to just try and get the right kinds of medium chain fatty acids to approximate what a long chain fatty acid might do for, for your, for your brain and your central nervous system and everything else. Like there's, there's so many things you have to do and get the quantities just right in order to still mm-hmm. be healthy, That it's, um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a lot. It's, it's, well, it's very hot. Yeah.
0: I, that is not my experience at all. Um, so in fact, I find like, like the pro like the solution that I'm going for is that what I tell people how to eat is um, to eat what you, like, if you were living on this land, mm. um, eat what you could get in naturally attainable quantities. Right. So like, if you're going to have a cookie, like, let's figure yeah. out how much wheat would you like. How much energy would you have to put into collecting all the ingredients—the wheat, mm. the sugar—and the th- nice. and so like, there's a like, there's a way in which a largely plant-based diet would have been mm. what we would have eaten, um, right? Well, so- I
1: guess in in the country where you are, the idea is um, for humans anyway. Um, the idea is follow the bears, like humans eat what the bears eat
0: right but then once we've already domesticated crops yeah right so now to be like when i when i look at the the world as it is right now to me being Mm. vegan is the Mm. best option for me for the environment when you can when you look at where else could i get my meat from Mm. factory farms from feedlots the you know all the food, all the grains and the the soybeans that that are grown for the animals as opposed to mm. for me, um and and so what I can do is well, I can get, yeah go ahead.
1: So sorry man, I I uh, just really quick you're you're being you know indigenous to your environment, you're responding and adapting to your environment and to the food chains that are around you. It's yeah. Sorry, I, that was a thought I just had. It's like, yeah, uh-huh. you, you're in that, so you're doing it, and it's working. Sorry, keep keep on, bud. Yeah, well,
0: it's 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 working. My concern is that I can take something that's working and turn it into a religion. Yeah. <laughs> right? Which means, like, the thing that I did when I was four years old that worked is I would skin my mm-hmm. knee and cry and get chocolate, and I could spend my whole life doing some version of that. Yeah. And... Like I'm, I'm feeling like veganism is a really positive response to this environment in which I'm in, but it's not going to save. Mm. It's not going to save. Like, like what I learned was veganism will save the world. It will save civilization, but it still Mm. requires Mm. huge monocrops. It's still like the. I feel like the ultimate answer is something like not having like be finding a way to get back to yep. nature.
1: Well, it's about, um. okay. So, so yes, we're the custodial species. So the idea, like a lot of vegans, like they're really cool about policing everybody else's food choices. Okay. So, so it's like, well, that's, that's how I'm a custodian of the world. I'm trying to stop the murder of all these animals who look a little bit like me who like when they have a baby, I would look at that baby and go, Oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but I guess here, here's the thing. What, what you're supposed to be a custodian of is your food chain, your bioregion, but your diet, you know, so what you're bringing into that bioregion, you know, for your diet or what you're extracting from that bioregion. The idea is um, is regeneratively giving back and making sure that lasts now, so I guess like your your challenge as a vegan is to figure out how do we do soybean production without biocide? You know, mm. and maybe CRISPR is one of those directions. And maybe well say, say more
0: about biocide, like what are what are we killing uh, when we grow soy? Okay, soybeans? you're
1: killing okay, for a start, you're killing so many animals that look like you and with babies that you would think would were cute. Like you're killing a lot of mammals
0: that are in the fields that get <laughs> harvested. Okay.
1: With- yeah. Well, they're, they're the things that are in the fields now. And yes, they get, they get just churned up with the rest. Um, but what about what was in the field before, uh, before it became a soybean field <laughs> mm-hmm. that, I mean, the, the, the actual, just, you know, the eradication of that biota in order to make the dead dirt patch that you're then going to, you know, spray all your chemical fertilizers and stuff on uh, to, to and uh, to make your soybean production. You know, into this sponge of dead dirt. I mean, not to mention just the, the bio side of the earth itself. Like the the soil, like a teaspoon of soil, as you know, contains so much life, like more diversity of life in one healthy teaspoon of soil, and you'll find... In, in the, you know in, a, in probably the whole rest of your your community, you know what I mean it's just incredible um, what's in dirt. so to kill that dirt is just is the most horrendous thing. It's an act of self-termination you know for your own species, let alone all the things you're killing in there. But the land that had to be cleared and the ecosystem that had to be disrupted in order to even just make that soy field. It's so much more than the, you know, billions of animals and insects and everything else and marsupials, uh, not marsupials, where you are, uh, mammals, everything else that just gets destroyed with the harvest and the planting and the uh, clearing of the weeds, etc like every season. It's so much more than that, what has been destroyed. And it's so much more than that, just that massive soy field that's blocking flows from one natural system to the next you know, all those little mice and rodents and stuff that are going through at, you know, they're trying and, and the reptiles and everything else they're trying to get from one Island of, um, of, of sort of what's left a remnant bit of natural land. They're trying to get from that Island to the next one on the other side of your soil field, you know, because eco things move in ecosystems and these things need to be connected at least with corridors. If you're going to have these ridiculous bloody, um, you know, big monocrops like that. Um, But also what you're doing to the soy itself in domesticating that plant and only selecting the biggest, brightest, most protein-bearing seeds, you're killing, you're doing that plant species to death because you're not supposed to do that. You know, you have to select the withered seeds as well some of them to go in because you know like a tiny little seed that's actually no good for food to eat you know out of your soybean that has to go into the genetic profile as well because that'll be carrying something else that might be resistance to a, resistant to a locust plague down the track you know what i mean if you keep select if you keep inbreeding all of these you know biggest and brightest soy seeds and god forbid gmo ones as well you know, you're basically creating this, this inbred, you know, incestuous, horrendous bloody species, which is going to wither and die. Like I said, any species that's doing parent-child mating pairings is going to die out. You know, any species that is just mating like with like, like with like, like with like. In nature, it doesn't happen like that. You know, diversity is really important.
0: Yeah, so, that's probably- um, so,
1: you know, it's, it's sorry. That's, that's, that's only just skimming the surface and I know I've monologued for ages and I'm ruining the yarn because I'm talking for way too long, but it's, um, but you know, that, that's just a, a, a brush on the surface of, of how destructive it is, you know? So feedlots with cattle and pigs, they're incredibly destructive. Uh, but most of that destruction is, is, is because, is because of the, um, the surplus grains from these mega crops, that are subsidized by governance to um, to produce more than we could ever eat. So we're now, now we're forcing these animals to eat it and they don't like it. The systems don't like it. They're not supposed to be eating that. They're supposed to be eating grass. And so they're just farting and farting and farting as they sort of grow fat with their sick guts. Like you have to make an animal sick to make it what the marketplace wants, you know, and then you've got to kill it. It's awful, these things. But, you know, pastoralism, is probably um, is probably the most sustainable bloody farming practice that we can have and food production practice that we can have. Pastoralism, where you're moving, you actually have shepherds kind of thing, and you're moving flocks around on good grassland, which is the best kind of carbon sink you can have, by the way. And those, those animals grazing on that, but being moved around so they're not staying in one place and wrecking it, Um, they're actually they're reproducing that pasture over and over again and fertilizing it really well. And so you're moving these things around. Most of the arable land on the planet um, is not suitable for growing uh, food plants on. It's not suitable for horticulture. It's suitable for pastoralism. So we need to have these grass fed beasts being tended and moved around in the same way that, um, you know, wolves and hunters and all kinds of things used to move the bison herds around on your island there, on Turtle Island, you know, used to move the buffaloes around and that would shape the landscape and keep it reproducing. You know, right. Prairies, I think it's 97% of your prairies are gone and dead. These need to come back. They're going to collect more carbon than the Amazon will ever collect. Just your prairies, just if you brought back 20% of them. You know, these are important and that's what should be where the soy and the corn and everything else is being grown. You know, most of which is being destroyed to make artificial bloody scarcity so that it's worth something in the market, but constantly being subsidized. So we're producing more and more and more. And it's like, God, what else can we get out of this corn Ah, stuff it corn syrup? Nobody wants corn syrup. It makes them feel sick. Stuff it. Just put it in the tin of beans, put some corn syrup in their beans Put it in everything. Uh, put it in the paint. We'll, we'll put, I mean, <laughs> soy is, is so toxic. Like like the, the, the toxic waste that comes out of having to refine soy to make it edible, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to turn it into mm-hmm. tofu. The stuff the stuff that comes out of it, you know, uh, it used to go into paint. I used to put it into paint. Yeah. <laughs> and well, now they, I, they put I, it yeah. into into food. They put it into our like protein bars. Uh, <laughs> it's just like it's awful. And for a man, it's worse because it's it it, it messes with your estrogen, you know. And it's terrible, uh, especially so if you're someone like me, you know, eating a lot of soy and having two young babies. Because when you've got young babies and you're a man and you're not just a prick who just goes away and forgets about them uh if you're actually looking after those babies your yeah, estrogen levels like go right up and you put on heaps of weight and you start crying a lot <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but um you know soy does that to you as well and it really messes with you as a man so you've got to be careful with that soy well
0: you know i'm uh there you know there's plenty of science in my head, you know, about, you know, sort of studies of the difference between like estrogen from cow's milk and soy. So, you know, I'll have a lot of listeners saying, you know, why didn't you tell them about this? The studies that show that soy is a, yeah, yeah. a beneficial estrogen, but I'll, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to argue, but I just want I want to kind of.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It. Actually let's, let's um yeah. Let's leave that sort of stuff out. I what think I, um, I because then, I then it's not a yarn. Like I, 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 like I, 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 I do want to talk to you as we go along about, you know, indigenous diets and how they, they work, you know, on our, on our continent. And I have, I've spoken to native Americans who talk about, yes, you follow the bears, you know, and you know, because what the bears eat is what humans are supposed to eat. And, you know, so the bears will show you that what the edible fungi are and like this, this massive diet of just, you know, this omnivorous diet that in the right season, yeah, you're having some of these salmon, and you're having some of these things Um, and you're having honey and you're having fungus and you're having greens and roots and shoots and berries and all kinds of things.
0: Right. So, and again, you know, so living in this society in Mm. which all these persistent organic pollutants um, concentrate up the food chain and get stored in fat, right? Mm. Like there's like health reasons to avoid almost all animals, even like wild ones. Mm. um i just want to uh, so offer a couple things for like what i um i had a couple conversations with a veganic farmer up in mm. maine who's into regenerative and he was pointing out that if you eat tofu you are basically supporting the pork industry because the reason tofu is cheap is that all the stuff that's not all the okara gets yeah. sold to pig farms in north carolina yeah. yeah so so like like the more you the more you start like there's a myth of veganism that I have held for Mm. a long time that it's somehow pure. And Mm. it's, it's, it's sort of encapsulated and it, it doesn't spill out. Yeah. You know, um, Have have
1: you come across the idea of the local food movement? The idea that you have a 50 kilometer radius for your food. Yeah. And some people, you know, do a challenge where they do it for a year like that. And then they have to they have to get very creative, and there's things they have to grow and produce themselves, and all different kinds of relationships they have to make with different farmers and people, and uh, you know networks of people growing things in their backyards in order to get everything they need. I mean, I think um, it, you know a, a challenge would be to combine local food with veganism in that way, and and I think you know because. You know the, the reason, the only reason that veganism would be a a sort of a destructive force in the world is is if it was relying on these big food chains. But then everybody's diet is a destructive force in the in the in the world um, when relying on these massive food chains. Um, and there's something bad about that food that comes to you like that. There's something that's no good about it. You know, like I eat a lot of meat, but um, I, I find the, the meat that I get. You know that has there's so much meat that most of the meat now, for some reason, it doesn't eat grass anymore. And when you eat it, there's it's just nothing there. Like you're eating this fat where you're expecting to get all your good things from it. You know, from an indigenous point of view, and there's nothing in that fat except just you know carcinogens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just yeah. awful. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, and and one of the things I'm I'm a little like when you talk about like you know pastoralism. So certainly you know, the, the bison in North America created the 14 feet of topsoil for prairie. Um, you know, the, the herds in Africa, cr- you know, created a very lush land. But is there a difference between that and hunting those creatures and domesticating them? Like, you're, you know, like domestication yeah. of humans, domestication of soy. Like, is there a problem with, like, eating cows and sheep and these animals that, that have had their their will to live almost mm. bred out of them.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's, I mean, there's the other native American thing I've heard is the idea that, um, that wolves teach people how to be human, hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and the wolves have quite a, a distinct role with those, with those herds, you know, that, that they don't sort of own or domesticate them, but they're they in relation with them and they have kind of a covenant with those herds. And I guess, you know, for humans as a custodial species, you have to have a bit of a covenant with the food, you know, and with the species that, that you're that you're living with and from. You know, mm. there has to be a covenant there, you know, whereby you, you're making sure that you perpetuate that species, that your relationship with them is custodial. Now, custodial, it's different from um, from stewardship, it's different from having dominion over. The idea of capturing an animal and locking it up is just horrendous to me. Like, I hate that. I refuse. I refuse even to have pets. I hate the idea of pets. It's just awful to do that to an animal who would do that. It's just horrible. You, you just, yeah. I mean, it's bad enough that we're domesticated, but then that we might go on and domesticate other beings is just awful. And I guess the, um, you know, if you look at in the Middle East, where like as their civilization declined, as all of their land turned into desert, you know, that was forest and pasture land before. When you read in the Bible, it was quite beautiful. <laughs> the, the lands there just a couple just a few thousand years ago. Um, but now you, you look at it and it's all desert. So I guess you know, as their land just got devastated by these earliest civilizations you know, you can see that, that a lot of those peoples, most of them like return to a kind of pastoralism, Um, you know, so they had uh, flocks and herds that that they weren't locked up, but they were just kind of, there was this kind of uh, relationship, you know, with those animals. And there was this covenant of, yeah, I will, I will keep an eye on you throughout the day and the night and I'll protect you from other predators. And, you know, I'm, I'm, we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to eat some of you over time, you know, throughout your lives, and, and your life cycle is going to end up, um, you know, the idea your life cycle, instead of just sort of dying and, and sort of being distributed around uh, throughout the ecosystem, um, that's going to be mediated by you're going to pass through my digestive system mm-hmm. <laughs> at some stage as well. So there's that kind of covenant that happens there. Um, so you're part of that food chain rather than being a sort of a master of it, funneling it all into you. And instead of distributing all the resources from that, you're just kind of, you know, um, uh, putting it into these static heaps of waste that are sort of confined in one spot or, um, that, you know, are intensified and toxified and all that sort of thing. So I, I think that pastoralism was good and and I can see, you know, in the Middle East that they kind of returned to that. And then they had a kind of sustainable, you know, agriculture around these oases and around places along rivers and all that sort of thing, um, where they allowed those natural cycles of the rivers and everything else to, um, to keep sustaining, you know, the environment and they kind of returned to that, um, with a lot of the crops they were, they were growing and they had trade, you know, with other places. And so they were able to live quite well, um, you know, as they kind of um allowed their civilization to wind down and they were kind of in an act in in a in a phase of transition uh back to becoming fully human again in the middle East uh back mm-hmm. to a kind of indigeneity um until anglo oil arrived, and you know that that company anglo oil <laughs> uh-huh. um arrived and then they sort of changed everything back again, so you ended up with these. You know weird transitioning sort of feudal um Uh you know monarchies ended up sort of you know getting this artificial injection of wealth and and you know so that 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 got weird there um yeah yeah, you you find that all around the world people so you know you're in the jungle you're in the amazon and you're finding ruins of civilizations that (laughs) were trialed as an experiment and then just fell you know you go to Zimbabwe and you see some of the oldest ruins in the world, but nobody's quite sure how it got there and Archaeologists go well we we're just not going to look at that. we're just going to assume that white people were in Africa at some stage <laughs> <laughs> But you know all these places you know civilization's been an experiment over the last ten to fifteen thousand years, and these things have risen and fallen, and people have returned back to sustainable you know ways of living um with their environment with a vast range of different diets
0: yeah so it's, it seems like like being in a covenantal relationship mm. with with a species whether it's animal or plant mm. takes a lot of consciousness and a lot mm. of thought so when i you know when, in my romanticized view of native peoples. They're like, you know, talking to the spirit of the deer and doing and having ceremonies to thank, you know, and the, and the corn is the, and the squash and the beans are sisters. And it's very, you know, it's very animistic. Mm. And it's one of the things that I loved about Sandtalk is like, you're, you're, you're trying to get through my head that rocks are in, I can be in relation with rocks and I need to be in relation with rocks. And there's, there's a, there's a form of like equality, Mm. that maybe is the flip side of the the narcissism the like as like, as long as the that people are equal and have equal access to resources and equal equal opportunities and equal mm. status that i don't have a bunch of people working for me it seems yep. like that's sort of the basis for an indigenous way of of being covenantal with the, yeah. with your with your ecosystem
1: yeah, that's it. And, and, and these things, they're not just ceremonies and rituals to try and make sense of the world. They're, they're actually supposed to bring your way of life into alignment with the natural system and to, to guide your sort of holistic understanding of any interventions you do in that system so that they don't have bad knock-on effects. You know, so, um, so we have, uh, like in Australia, we've been trading uh, with Asia since long before our European invasion here. Uh, There was was trade with Asia. So we have like, um, you know, but before anything's introduced, you know, animals, plants, anything like this, this, this takes a very long time of sitting down and understanding the foundational story, the pattern, you know, almost the DNA of that species. Like you really need to understand the pattern of that and to have the right metaphors to describe that and figure out how that will come into the system without disrupting it too much. You know, so for example, have you, do you eat much tamarind? Have you come oh. across tamarind? Uh oh, yeah. I yeah. Get the, tamarind the, is, the
0: paste in like the Indian grocery yeah, store.
1: Yeah. So yeah, that Indian food there. Well, we had, uh, we've got, um, as a native plant now, we have uh, right across the north in Australia, we have tamarind. But that was only introduced like, you know, maybe a thousand years ago, mm. you know, in, into our ecosystem. And it took time. And there are song cycles for that. So there is ceremony for that plan, you know, because that's been brought in. And, and that's kind of like the, um, <sighs> you know, it, it's it's like what you have uh, big sort of management texts, land management texts and and biology sort of chapters around these sort of things. It's like that. And it's about understanding how to manage that and where where they're supposed to be. And how they're supposed to interact with and fit into everything else you know so there is there is ceremony for that plant uh there's ceremony and song cycles for tobacco you know um for not just the native tobaccos that have always been here but the ones that have been introduced uh, from asia through that trade Uh, Song cycles for different forms of agriculture uh, that came down from new guinea which is like the oldest agriculture on the planet there in New Guinea, they know how to do it right in that environment. But some of that uh, came down into the North of Australia, lots of different, um, you know, uh, plants and technologies and all these things, these get introduced and they come in with a dreaming and they come in with a, you know, correct usage way and they become, people become responsible for those as totems, you know? So one of my family totems is the dog, and the dog, of course, was in- introduced, but there is a story place with a dreaming, you know, for dogs in my community. There's song and there's dance and there's very sacred sculptures that we do for dogs
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, in my community. And that's that's one of my, my family's totemic sort of responsibility is, you know, <laughs> and we end up with these dogs that are like, they're like sacred cows <laughs> almost you know, the way those cows wander around in, in sort of vegetarian communities in India, and, um, you know, they don't, you're not allowed to mess with them. You know, we've got in my community, dogs are like that. <laughs> you know, they're, they're a really sacred sort of animal. So, you know, this is how these things, um, these things happen. And I guess, you know, a, as a vegan, like one of your roles is to figure out, well, what's, what's my relation with soy? And what's my responsibility to soy? This soy is keeping me alive. I have a covenant with that soy. How, how do I become responsible for the continuation of that species and to maintain the diversity of it? And um, I, I think if you're if you're eating a lot of soy, you should probably be growing a, a few soy plants in in your garden, not mm-hmm. just not for production, but just a few soy plants mixed in with everything else, just so you can talk to that plant uh, and sort of be with that plant and understand it and allow it to, um, you know, cross pollinate with other sort of, you know, diverse soy plants and allow it to just, you know, evolve there in your garden and to evolve alongside it. Um, you know, and, and you come into relation with that plant and you make a connection with it.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, I feel good. Cause we, yeah, we grew like 50 or 60 soy plants and they, they gave us maybe like, you know, four cups of edamame, but, uh...
1: <laughs> which is delicious. <laughs> When, when salted yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah but and it's not and it's it's almost not about that that production with with the food it's about you i mean it's obviously you're not doing it for the four cups of edamame <laughs> right you know, you're doing it to come into yeah. relation with that plant and understand it um yeah
0: you know it's and, funny and we, we grow we grow all these different kinds of beans and they're beautiful different you know yeah. like a bean A variety, like they're you know, red ones with scarlet things and orange ones. Oh, yeah. And we would bring in this basket, and like we would, you know, like the whole kitchen is now a complete mess, like it's impossible to do anything in the kitchen. We then have to move everything into the dining room when we're shelling them. And like my son comes in, he's you know, 21 and he and he's like, you know, you could like he sees us, like my wife and I will spend like four hours on a Saturday shelling beans, and we end up with he's like you know, that's like a dollar's worth of beans at the supermarket. Like what the hell are you doing? And yep. like, to me, the answer is so obvious, but I don't know exactly. I didn't, I think you've helped yeah. me put it in words. Yeah. Like, why am I doing that?
1: You're doing a lot of work for, I mean, it's more than than what the energy you're getting from that plant, but that's the thing you're, you're trying to give back. You're trying to be in a reciprocal relation with those plants. And um, you, you you just, I mean, as a as an organism, that's part of your patterning, and that's what you have to do, and um, that's really exciting to me. Mm. It's beautiful.
0: Uh, well, I'm so happy about that, and I yeah, and I love how you're framing it because, like, I'm I'm coming in. I came in for a long time thinking that veganism was the solution, mm. and while. I don't think it's the problem. I don't think it's the solution because it's like, it's built on assumptions of this civilization, which is self, which is self-terminating. Mm. Um, what I, what I, what I wanted to ask you about, I, and I, this might be a totally off topic thing, but I'm going <laughs> to, you know, I was inspired by your self-reflection about your yarns, like the ones that went well, it's just like, don't sell, don't, second guess or self-doubt like, I want to ask you about um the idea of orphan and I kinda, and I as I hear myself say it I know there's you know there's things you allude to about your life in the book which I'm like sensitive about but like that just occurred to me right now honestly like mm. I was thinking like the central literary metaphor of my civilization is the orphan story yeah and it occurred to me for the first time we come, after back, reading, to,
1: we come yeah. back to the Queen's the Queen's Gambit.
0: <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Yeah. But that like like that's our the central hero that we all identify with in the West is the orphan, from Harry Potter to Beth Harmon in the Queen's Gambit to just about everyone. And I was wondering like, is that in traditional indigenous tales as well? Or is that like this idea of being orphaned? Yeah. Is that just like our trauma?
1: no i mean so in our culture and and this is only something that i that i got to um that that i got to really understand and come into in the this the second half of my life was this idea that there is no such thing as an orphan in our culture because you can't be an isolated human being you know um yeah so so if you're finding yourself um you know, um, outcast or, you know, uh, cut off, you know, from your, from community in, in some way or you're lost or anything else, um, there's, people will take you in. There's no such thing as an orphan because, you know, a, a, a child who's, who, who's lost their family or is separated from family, they, they will get new family um, straight away and they'll be brought straight into that, that family. There's no such thing as uh, an unwanted child. You know, there are unwanted children in this civilization. So civilizations produce unwanted children. But Mm -hmm. that's not where it begins. The true story of that is that is unwanted mothers, usually. You know, so in a society that's hostile to mothers, this makes it very difficult, you know, for one mother to be able to raise a child. And I think most people... Uh, who are unwanted and outcast, which is a lot of mothers, you know, it makes it almost impossible to raise a child. So you end up with a lot of abandoned children. And then the state is supposed to take care of that. And we see what happens like, you know, with the, um, you know, the immigration stuff where children were separated, you know, uh, recently in the United States, you know, they, they go into the system and it's been almost impossible to reunite a lot of those children with their families because they're just lost in the system now you know it's it's absolutely terrifying but we we um yeah we don't have that there's no such thing as an unwanted child or an unwanted mother you know um in indigenous societies mm. and is you, the basis- you, you don't have the orphan i guess here's the thing and to answer your question more directly the idea of the the reason the orphan is so attractive in the western mythology is that it um it's 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 the perfect candidate for the hero's journey and it's a very attractive narrative. And I didn't realize that I was, um, you know, looking at my own sort of in the first half of my life, my own status as this kind of lost person, you know, this um, this adrift person, uh, how attractive that was to me and how much I used that in curating my life story, you know, as this dispossessed, adrift, lost person out in the world, you know, having adventures and, and fighting and being damaged and overcoming that and becoming stronger through every bit of abuse was just making me stronger and blah, blah, blah. You know, um, it's it's an attractive narrative. I can see why people are into it, but it's, um, it's a lie. The okay. hero's journey is a lie. There's no such thing as a hero. <laughs>
0: Tell, tell me more about that because I actually wrote that down next to Orphan, and I felt like like that was like the one true thing because Joseph Campbell wrote a book about every culture has this one story of humanity. And since the reading Sand talk, I was actually starting to say like, I've done damage by imposing that narrative. like it does again, it's 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 the narrative of this civilization coming from mm. a deep lack, a deep orphaning from our land. Can you help ah. me understand? Like, tell me, tell me why the hero's journey is such bullshit.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, that's, see, that's really interesting. I'd made that connection between the orphan idea and the, I'd, I'd only made the connection as far as going, yeah, well, the orphan is attractive to that myth, but then the idea of sort of the whole culture, this, this dominant world culture, actually um, this civilization sort of orphaning itself in a way in order to, to, to fit with the hero's journey mythology, that's, that's true. You know, I, I think of this uh, civilization as an adolescent culture, you know, but yeah, it's kind of orphaned itself. Um, look, we all exist in profound relation. You know, and we know this, you know, no man is an island, all that kind of thing. Everybody knows it. You know, we exist in profound relation, in a web of relations, and that is who you are. Your relationships are who you are and they make you individual because no other person has exactly the same web of relations that you have. That's your universe. And it's so valuable and so precious, but it's not something that you own or that, you know, um, makes you this amazing individual at the same time you exist in relation to that. And you have obligations to that network of relations and your inputs uh, to that that uh, that web of life that you belong to are really important. You know, of course, that's what drives you to um, do the work that you're doing with your beans and everything <laughs> else to come into relation with those plants because those relationships are not just with other humans, they're with non-humans, um, you know, and, and everything around you. Yeah, I, I just, I think that's a really good insight. That's why I wanted to talk to you again. Like, um Yeah. Like we talked about yarns, like you mentioned before, the idea of yarns and when you come into a yarn the wrong way and it doesn't work out, um, yeah, you don't beat yourself up about it. <laughs> so that's why I contacted you and said, "No, I want to have another go <laughs> at a yarn because we didn't get there." Um, yeah,
0: yeah, I mean, but there's there's parts of the hero's journey that I still, you know, I still find, like again, it's a baby in bathwater sort of thing. Like the mm. idea that there's always a call to adventure that there's yeah. But, the, but I guess the, the primary thing is like the hero is in some sort of barren land, right? Like the yeah. queen is infertile. There's a dragon. There's some, it starts with a deficit. And the problem with it is that in order to succeed at life, you have to be a fucking hero. Like yeah. Most people I know are not heroes. And, and, and in, in this civilization, in the Tony Robbins world, there's something wrong with you if you don't step up and become a hero, yeah. an entrepreneur, a CEO, a megastar.
1: Yeah. Right. But it, explains, so, it explains we're why. We're so vulnerable. Yeah as, as, yeah. as an individual hero, you're so vulnerable. We're very delicate creatures. And, and without community and without family, you know, we're, we're very strong together. But individually, we're, we're ridiculously weak. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the idea of this impermeable hero who's out having adventures and, and just injuring himself and others and somehow dominating. It's, it's a, it's a lie. It doesn't work. You know, no. you, you, I mean, I'm I just, I mean, I, I, what I, I, I think I, I lived that really intensely for about a decade of my life, you know, being this, this lone bloody, you know, separated individual sort of hero or anti-hero because that's what we were raised with all those narratives from the, 1970s right through till today that, you know, there's this anti-hero kind of thing, you know, Um, and I was really being that and living that, but the injuries to my body, which now that I'm nearly 50, um, those are are becoming very apparent to me (laughs) when, you know, you've got a knee that doesn't work and you've got ribs out of place and, and you've got like, you know, chips and cracks and fractures and things that'll never quite heal properly. You know, it's like, well, that's where the hero's journey takes you. Mm-hmm. It takes you to a very shortened life and a lot of pain and, and disability and all kinds of things. It's, there was no such thing as Theseus, Perseus, Achilles, all these people, you know. And, and there is, I mean, even Achilles, it wasn't just his heel that was vulnerable. I mean, he was probably a real man and that real man was just one big heel. <laughs> one big Achilles heel. And, and any part, like your armor is your relationships. If, if you have good, solid relations that you're in a state of reciprocity with human and non-human all around you, mm. that's your armor. That's what protects you from insult and injury in the world. You know? Um,
0: um, so is, is that the alternate story? Like if I give up the hero's journey, I still need narrative, right? To, to understand my life. What's, what's, what's the replacement?
1: Yeah. Well, the replacement are those stories of relatedness and they're there. They're all there. You know, <laughs> <laughs> those stories of relatedness are there. Like they're, they're out there in so many different cultures. Um, and, there, and they're so exci- They're so familiar? exciting. Ah, like I feel like you know, heaps of them, half the stories in the Bible are stories of relatedness, you know. Um, in the Quran, <laughs> in you know, you, you pick a culture, pick a narrative, and you'll find you know the emergence of these you know hero's journey stuff because civilization requires that. But you'll also find you know, you'll also find um other things as well, uh-huh. you know, and a lot of them are cautionary tales as well about going the wrong way individually. Bloody Cain and Abel start with that you know that's a cautionary tale about um coming out of a relation hmm. um and uh, i mean i don't want to um yeah let's not let's not politicize the <laughs> the oh, rejection wow. re- the rejection of um of of cain's vegan offering <laughs> <laughs> to god etc um sorry i'm just being cheeky there um, yeah, but they, every culture has those stories. There, there are cautionary tales about, um, you know, being the hero and the hero's journey. And even in even the hero's journey, it always ends up tragic. You know, Gilgamesh, pretty much the first one that I'm aware of, um, that doesn't end well for Gilgamesh. Hmm. You know what I mean? Um, he, he, so he, I guess that's the originating hero's journey mythology. Um, Yeah. And it's it's just not what it is. And look, the Aboriginal uh, myths and legends that Joseph Joseph Campbell um, sort of airbrushed and mutated to fit his story. I mean, those actual initiatory um, uh, rituals and stories that they're, they're actually very different. They're not about a hero's journey. They're about sort of killing that idea of an individual hero and bringing that person into relation. You know, with their, with their obligations. Uh, to the dreaming community, to the landscape, that's mm. what those that's what those things are for. He only took the part of, about the the hero bit, but <laughs> but you know if you follow those stories through to the end, you actually see that the idea is it's a cautionary tale against it going that way. It's not mm. about so- elevating that hero.
0: So, because like my understanding is, the ordeal is, you know, you're going to get your foreskin cut off at the age of thirteen, and you can't cry, or you have to survive in the wilderness. Like it does feel like a very individual stoic, mm. um, you know, threshold to become a grown up in your community. What am I? What am I missing?
1: Yeah, um, it's yeah, it's 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 not that. <laughs> it's it's not about that. It's about it's about teaching people that tension and balance are between autonomy and relatedness because you can't be subsumed into a hive mind either we're not supposed to be doing that mm. we're supposed to be maintaining you know a tension and balance between our fabulous unique individuality and our networked relation we have a a fluid you know self other boundary as human beings you know where you know, you are you, but at the same time, you are us, you know, and we have, I mean, even our language structures in Aboriginal languages reflect that, you know, um, and there is, there has to be a sort of a tension and constant balance between those two things. They have to be negotiated all the time. And I guess you see this in ecosystems and complexity theory, when you see that the idea of diversity in a complex system um, is, is, is not just having, you know, all these, um you know, different sort of categories of groups interacting with each other, you know, like, um, you know, Sikhs, you know, talking to, <laughs> you know, Irish over here or something like that. It's, it's, it's within those groups, the people that you are most similar to, you know, um, you need to maintain a lot of diversity. You need to maintain a lot of difference between yourself and the people you're most similar to because you see this happening in nature all the time. And it's the way genetic diversity is preserved. So you see like one family of chimps has more genetic diversity um, than th- the entire human species. There's more genetic diversity in one family of chimps than there is in the entire human species. I and mean, the idea is you do need to maintain that difference um, with yourself. But at the same time, this kind of, it's this kind of networked individualism. Mm. Uh, it's, it's very hard to explain, but it doesn't sit in a binary, uh, mm. like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's almost, it's almost like the the initiation ritual is an invitation into a right way and a wrong way. Like you could, mm. you could easily like pass the test by failing
1: or something. Yeah. But the idea is, is to teach you that you're not special. So you, you know, you put someone in, in a situation where they're very much inhabiting their special, unique individuality. And then you're, you're knocking them out of that. You're teaching them that to live in that is to die. And so you, you ritualistically kill somebody or banish somebody, you know, within that highly individualized state. And that's mm. the, the shock that makes somebody become an adult is to understand who they are individually is, is, is nothing, you know, it's, it's their, it's their web of relations that makes them, that makes them unique and they have obligations to that. And it's a very hard thing to step into because you've got to kill that, that idea that you've come up with through childhood, that you are special and you're the center of the universe. Mm. I
0: can't, I can't wait for you to finish the queen's gambit.
1: Sorry. Okay,
0: I'm not going to spoil it for you, but uh,
1: I just I can't imagine it's going to end well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <My>.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but this uh. this
0: this uh, this will come up in, in the last mm. episode this this mm. issue of special and not special.
1: Yeah, well, look, um, I, I you know, and I guess I, I wanted to talk to you about food mm-hmm. um, yeah. as well, and just the, the different ways of categorizing that. You know, so it's interesting. So, a lot of things from a Western point of view that are regarded as an animal product or a plant product. So, I mean, we have, so, so in, in my family's language, we have, um, you know, food is broadly, you know, divided into my and min. You know, so min is your protein sort of uh, based, uh, mostly animal products, min. Mm-hmm. And my is your mostly your uh, you know cellulose mm-hmm. that, that, that kind of thing. so almost plant-based. Um, and everything's categorized into that or that. and you kind ha- of you, you, you have to have a 50-50 balance between those things. So your meal any meal will uh, ideally be half and half half my and half mint. But if you look at something as simple as um, um, honey. So honey, honey is called at, but that's, so you put the prefix, you put either my or min in front of any animal or plant. Now, honey is called my at. So that's in the vegetable side, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but then if you look uh, in other parts of the hive are classified as min, you know, so the pollen, the propolis, all that sort of thing, that's called min. <laughs> mm-hmm. so it's more um,
0: it's more about a um a quality yeah right? like it's yeah. sort of like i'm, I'm picturing the yin yang of of doing du- you exactly. know not 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 binaries but dualities
1: yeah so balance. like you know half the hive is is seen as a as like a plant-based food and half of it is seen as as protein you know um it's 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 really interesting, you know. So we have that, and it's kind of I don't know. It's kind of it, there's a wrongness to um, to just uh, going going too far in either direction, you know, with your diet. So if somebody's just eating kangaroo or magpie goose or something like that, then that person won't live for very long. You know, there there has to it it has to be a a, a there has to be a lot of variation in the diet and it also has to be seasonal. You can only eat things when they're in their peak nutritional phase in a season. So that only lasts for up to a, for like a couple of months, you know, that you're eating this one particular food and then you don't eat it until that time again, next year, you know, Um, (laughs) and that, that's, that's how it works. And so there's, there's a different diet in uh, every season and there are, you know, up to eight seasons, you know, there's between six and eight seasons anywhere where you go in Australia. And you see this all around the world. You know, that four seasons model was really an economic model that was imposed on, um, you know, uh, times for extraction mm. know, of resources. You know, that, yeah. that's a civilized model of the seasons is four seasons. But there actually, there's nowhere in the world that there are just four distinct seasons. There are, you know, usually between six and eight anywhere where you go in the world you'll see those changes happen yeah
0: what's what's coming to me as you say that is coming back to the idea of hero because you know my job is i coach people to be healthy and in Mm. this society it means doing hard things all the time yeah right it means getting up in the morning and going for a run like why the fuck would i do that it's cold Mm. outside it means saying no to the concentrated calories at the checkout counter of everywhere and like again like this idea that like we shouldn't have to be heroes It's like what you're talking about is a civilization living willingly living within constraint where like if i can't eat a snickers bar yeah or or eat you know chicken three times a day yeah right like the like like you know this idea of the herds. Like, there's um, a farmer in, in America, Joel Salatin, who has like does his the, the, the uh, rotational grazing. And there's a guy, Alan mm. Savory, in Zimbabwe, I think, who who's trying to do like holistic management. The truth is, if if every farmer did that, people would be eating like a pound of meat a week or yeah. a month, and not yep. four pounds a day. It's like yeah. like constr- like we're so we're so opposed to constraint like don't like give me choice and yet it's it's the constraint that that is one of the ways that makes us domest undomesticated or human as you put it yeah
1: it's so it's so hard i mean i would i mean the the times in my life when i've been healthy and this isn't one you know i've been eating small amounts of animal products uh high quality <laughs> you know like wild, wild meat even even when i was eating uh, I spent a quite a period of my life living off roadkill, um, mm. <laughs> you know, when I was very destitute, and um, and I was healthier then than I am now. You know, uh, if you're having high quality animal products, you don't need very much. You can you can um, do very well on like one meal a day, and you can even skip a day. You know, um, but you know at the same time, the your your body is not your own. You know, most of your body is inhabited by other tiny beings that need to be eating, that they live off that those vegetable products. They need it. Right. And you can't just be having all these cadaverines and nothing else going in because you've got to feed those little beings because they're the ones that make up most of your body weight, you know, <laughs> and they need that. And those little beings, most of them are vegetarian. So... <laughs> they need to be eating that. So, you yeah. know, anyone is doing this carnivore diet, wrong way, you know, you, you need all of these things. Um, but but I mean, back to the hero's journey, like you mentioned exercise. I mean, so um, so I, I, I spent quite a bit of my life where the exercise was natural, you know, um, so, you know, I was hunting or fishing or out walking or running on country to get somewhere or, um, you know, looking for wood you know, over a vast area, looking for exactly the right kind of wood in the right shape to carve. And then the act of carving itself, these, this was my exercise. That was good. Before that, I had to do in order to keep myself fit, to be the hero that could fight people randomly in the street. You know, I had to train a lot. And to force yourself to do purposeless exercise, the only purpose is, you know, to be fit. It's this abstract, it's really hard and you need a narrative to do that and you need the hero's journey to force yourself to do that
0: mm. you
1: know so i wonder what story you tell yourself when you're exercising pointlessly so for me um, i used to play the soundtrack of, of conan the barbarian in my head and i <laughs> couldn't force myself to run 10 ks unless i was sort of the whole time going bum 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 and i had to do that the whole way just to be like rah, <laughs> yeah. you know. I'm like this narrative- sole, lone hero in a in a in a, a toxic in a in a in a hard landscape. And what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And off we go. And you have to tell yourself that story, or you can't force yourself into that. It's very hard. Yeah. What what story do you yeah. tell yourself that's so more my, healthy? My,
0: yeah, my narrative is um, n- human beings were not supposed to sit, or yeah. like you know they're supposed to move like we are Mm. bipedal and so if i don't do five six ten miles a day i'm not being human yeah and if i want to pretend i'm a a hunter i have to average about 10 miles you know 10 minute miles yeah you know walk sprint a little bit like what would i like
1: do what you normally do while foraging yeah yeah
0: it's like i learned this from one of my my business partner is a guy from Louisiana who used to be mm. 400 pounds and became a, a very fit human. It's like, and he was also, he grew up hunting and fishing. He mm. was like, what, like watching animals, like, yeah. What do I owe the world for the calories I'm taking in? Cause yeah. I get the calories I'm taking in by sitting in front of the screen and writing and talking. Yeah. But I, like, I haven't earned them with my body. Yeah. Like how do I yeah. earn my calories?
1: Yeah. It's, it's very difficult. I guess, I mean, that's where resistance training most sort of mimics what you're supposed to be doing, you know, because you're not just running 10 Ks as a human, you know, you're going, you're going, having bursts of speed, you're going fast, slow, you're negotiating that that with other people who are also doing diverse activities with you. Um, You know, you're stopping and and picking things up. You're carrying things, Mm. maybe something heavy. You know, you're collecting things. You're bending down, standing up. You're you're digging. You're all kinds of things. You know, um, mm. but by so far, I think the there best- has to be variety. But but it's still purposeless. You know, man, I tried. I tried that CrossFit. I tried really hard. Yeah. Because uh, when I moved to the city, I wasn't getting the natural movement that I had before. Mm-hmm. You know, and I enjoyed like 15 or 20 years of it of of actually moving through landscapes. Um, in the right way. And then I moved to the city about three years ago and, and, and I'm just, I'm, I'm so unhealthy and I'm so overweight now. And it's very difficult because I can't inspire myself now. I, I just can't do the Conan theme anymore. It doesn't inspire me <laughs> um, like I did when I was a kid, you know? And, but now I'm like, ah, what do I do? I mean, I can't, I'm finding it really hard to force myself to do exercise that doesn't do anything. It just burns calories for no purpose. It's like, what am I producing? Um, yeah. What am I looking after? I'm not looking after any landscapes. I'm like, I mean, how could I do that in a landscape that's, you know, essentially a swamp that's been covered over with concrete?
0: Yeah. yeah the other way I think about it is that my running is some sort of a, an offering, a sacrifice, a prayer. Nice. Like this is, like I was, like this body was created to be optimal in a certain yeah. way and like giving it up to the universe to creator.
1: Mm.
0: So like, okay, yeah, I'm in a shitty place and I have to run on a asphalt road and I have to pick up fake things and lift them. Like when I can, you know, we have some woods I can like, you know, chop down a, a dead tree and chop it for firewood and haul it like that feels incredible. Yeah. Uh, but the rest of the time is like, God. Okay. So it's really hard right now. It's, it's yeah. not, it's not, you know, like it's like being vegan. It's like yeah. it's not, it's not the natural state, but what's the best I can do. Yeah.
1: So you're ritualizing it and you're offering that up. Yeah. That's, it's, that's, it's definitely, that's, that's great. Big, bigger than that's me. deadly. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. That's a, a really good, uh, I'm going to try that one. I mean, see, I've, I've located all the places where underground water is flowing under the concrete here. You know, because you and you can feel it through your feet. It's like this magnetism, you know. And it's the first thing I did when I got here was I followed where the flows of water were, so I could understand where I was. Mm-hmm. You know, um, maybe I should be running those lines of energy. Maybe I should be running and walking those, and um, and connecting that way. And that's the way I get my exercise. So I'm gonna try that and I'll send you an email to let you know how it worked out. Oh, awesome.
0: And I'm yeah. thinking I would love to uh, I don't want to impose on you, but I would love to have one more of these conversations with you and with Josh, the Louisiana guy, who, yeah. who I got to listen. He, you know, he listened to Sand Talk, and I told him that he was the most indigenous person I know, like or undomesticated. <laughs> I would, I would yeah, say yeah. like he's he's wild in some very interesting ways. I would love to you know yeah. to part- participate in that conversation
1: yeah. it's um I, and that i know what you mean by wild but i mean that that word's got a lot of you know hero's journey connotations too huh. like you know you know the difference between gilgamesh and enkidu kind of thing there's this idea of uh, wildness being unstructured and all that sort of thing but i mean what's interesting is is how much restraint you have when you're living um in the constraints of the law of the land, mm. you know, the, the, the limits that the land places upon you and the obligations. Once you come into relation with that land, the obligations that are on you, the immense obligations that you have to land and place. I mean, they've, they've, it's, um, it's funny that that wildness is not, is not random and chaotic. It's, it's so highly structured <laughs> and it's, it's so restrictive its wildness is restrictive and mm. i think most people would not want to be harnessed uh by wild, <laughs> wildness wildness uh. <laughs> although the, even the idea of wild is is this kind of idea of chaotic randomness um that's not what it is it's 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 law with a capital l yeah um yeah, yeah but I, mean, know, I know i know that's what you mean when you say wild but yeah. it's it's interesting yeah. like a lot of other people's definitions of wild is very different yeah
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like when I feel that obligation, I Mm. never, I never feel more human than when I feel like I'm under that obligation.
1: Yeah. Things become clear. Yeah.
0: Like that's the end of of my orphanhood. It's like, oh. Yeah. I'm part of something and it happens, you
1: know.
0: You're ritualistically
1: running and connecting with that. You know, you're doing that as ceremony. Um, your exercise is almost ceremony that's yes. bringing you into relation, um, you know, with something that your, your domestication is, is, is sort of forcing you to be separate from. But you're coming back into relation with that. It's lovely.
0: Yeah, it does feel like a rebellion against domestication to mm. run until it hurts. Yeah. Right? Because my ancestors didn't have a choice when they when they needed to forage when they needed to you know and i know you talk about like the paleo time was not a time of scarcity but yeah. it was certainly a time of effort
1: yeah yeah there's effort but then i mean there almost there almost wasn't enough to do in that and that's why kind of sport and contests <laughs> sort of came about you know what i mean i mean mm-hmm. the amount of effort that people put into like most of your exercise as a paleolithic person uh, would have been in ceremony and dance and, um, and sport, you know, like very, very vigorous sport. You know, it's, um, I mean, in, see the idea of moving around a landscape seasonally, you're going to different areas in different seasons where things are abundant. That's the idea. And that's what defines a bioregion is, is the area in which humans in their ecological niche are able to move around and find abundance uh, within a given territory. That's what a bioregion is, and that was what most of the boundaries of territories were, and they're quite stable for a for a long time, hundreds of thousands of years. You know, so you're there and you're in you're in that place on your territory in your bioregion where it's just optimal abundance in that particular season. Like you know, you can almost close your eyes in a, in a bird or bat season and just throw a stick in the air and knock something for your lunch, you know, and that's it. Right. It's, and, um, that's, and
0: that's the experience I get at the supermarket.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, a, a lot of your effort is going into actually looking after that country as well. Mm. So, you know, not just, you know, digging laboriously to find one root vegetable to eat, but you're, you know, uh, you're digging in a way that is going to reproduce, that root root vegetable. So you're leaving part there, but you might be planting others around the place in in that area. You know, so you're not just trying to extract from the land. You're always trying to give back, you know, as much as you're taking and you're trying to, you know, uh, propagate and regenerate all of these things and to increase uh, those things. And there's a lot of effort that goes into that, into the management of land. Uh, but then into the 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 ritual sort of ceremonies and very vigorous dances that go for like, you know, like big, um, big ceremonies that go for like eight hours, where you're just flat out. You haven't got time to get a drink of water. You're you're dancing and dancing and dancing, and and <laughs> that is so much more vigorous mm. than what it takes to extract, you know, the the energy that you need from the landscape. Mm. Um, you have to be putting that back in, you know? So I guess there is that idea of purposeless activity that isn't about finding nutrition. That's actually, yeah. Ritualized in the way that you say, I think that's really important. Uh, what hmm. you've expressed there, mm. that exercise almost needs to be ceremony. Um,
0: oh, I love that.
1: It's, it's I love of, that.
0: It's I love of man- that. It's a form of manners. Yeah. Like it's like human beings who are extractive exclusively or it's rude.
1: Yeah. Isn't it? Well, look now that, I mean, this conversation has probably added 10 years to my life. Um, so I think, <laughs> I thank you for that. Cause I, I'm going to mm-hmm. start to um, uh, try and reimagine um, exercise as ceremony. Um, because mm-hmm. I'm missing both. Like in the city, I'm missing ceremony. I'm missing exercise you know um that I would normally do in my relation with caring for country and all that sort of thing so yeah that is yeah. Uh, and we would also do it spectacular
0: we would also do it in community normally yeah right like yeah. running with a group or playing a game or you know doing chores together yeah it's much more natural like every so often i'll go out and you know do yeah. something in solitude but not not preferably
1: yeah well there's the lone jogger who's like trying to improve their personal best time or whatever or get their heart rate to a certain level but then you got groups of joggers who are kind of trying to find you know the um the aggregate kind of pace and direction and route together which um yeah that's really something too yeah
0: yeah i was for a long time i was working on you know with my my GPS watch. Can I get under a nine thirty pace? Can I go faster? And then there's a guy who runs on my street in the morning when I run. Older guy uh, runs with a dog. I love him. And I decided, like, you know what? We're going to do twelve minute miles just so I can hang out with Gary. As opposed, like, like that felt more important for myself and for the world than like a, a race pace.
1: Yeah, that's it. Um. Yeah, competition is not necessarily yeah, <laughs> the, the best way to go. And I guess, you know, if we see ourselves as individual in, individuals in competition for resources or in competition for, you know, uh, what's the narrative about those resources and, and everything else, I, I think that's the unhealthy way to go. Um. Yeah, I, I think we're, you know, we're on a path to to rediscovering a way in this time of transition into rediscovering ways of of you know moving back into a more kind of human relation um, mm. with the world around us through these things through diet through exercise all of these things yeah beautiful
0: beautiful That's, that seems like a good place to to wrap up for now
1: beautiful so Tyson, thank you thank so you. much for Yanni, howie yeah
0: <laughs> oh so happy i can't I can't wait till uh, covid goes away and i can go to australia and <laughs>
1: Sounds great.
0: Learn how to carve and run. and
1: Yeah, well, you can come and see what the concrete looks like over here. <laughs> cool.
0: Thank you so much.
1: <laughs> okay. It was great That's to good. talk to you, Harry. You Thank too. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. All right. I
0: hope you really enjoyed that conversation. It was a mind blower for me. Um, you can also watch this on YouTube or at plantyourself.com slash 439, where you can also find the show notes for today's episode. So, here we got? We got running news. Running news is I had a really good Frisbee game until my last play which was the throw was a little bit high. I reached up and hyperextended my knee and messed it up again. So I'm back to walking probably for another week or two. Bad Howie. Uh, Garden news. uh, The the exciting thing was I built a couple of ramps for sheds where we keep our two-wheel tractor and our lawnmower. I've never been much of a a handyman, so it's really exciting for me to like build these ramps and screw things together and pour down gravel. I feel very gratified like I'm living (laughs) according to the law of the land and in some small way. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenour.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Berenst, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franz, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizo, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzin, Wakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Anne Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Byrd, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bicorni, Stephen Patti Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Alison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.